The, uh, the topic this morning is leaders of the Reformations, plural, in England. Uh, we have looked at the historical context of the Reformation in the first uh, week of this course, and then at uh, Martin Luther and the German Reformation, then at John Calvin and the Reformation in Geneva and, and Switzerland and, and beyond, the Reformed movement. And this morning we're going to look at the Reformations in England. I had actually intended to put together England and Scotland uh, for this morning and just found that there was no way that I could do them uh, in the same, same week. So, so we'll look at Scotland next week. Um, and you'll notice from the pictures up here that we have, we have a king and a queen. We have King Henry VIII uh, on the left there and Queen Elizabeth I as leaders of the Reformations in England? That's a strange idea, isn't it? Especially since King Henry VIII remained uh, thoroughly committed to the Roman Catholic faith aside from the supremacy of the Pope till the day he died. How could he be a leader of the Reformation in England? Uh, that's a strange idea. Queen Elizabeth, well, she was indeed Protestant, but pretty nominally so. She certainly wasn't terribly committed to any of the, the uh, defining doctrines of Protestant faith. So how could she be a leader of the Reformations in England? We'll figure that out momentarily. Uh, also on the screen here, we have um, William Tyndale, who published the first complete translation of the New Testament into English, and he was uh, both a great translator of the New Testament and a, a very fine theologian. And so he is more understandable as one of the leaders of the Reformations in England. And then we have a picture of what is called the Martyrs Memorial outside Balliol College in Oxford that honors three men who were martyred for their faith uh, there. And we'll get to know who those three are shortly. Um, <coughs> There are basically two reformations that went on in England. One is a political one, and the other is a spiritual one or a theological one. And the two are really quite distinct, and we saw them revealed in those uh, characters that we see here. The two at the lower part are the spiritual uh, characters, and the upper are the political. And we're, I'm going to start by giving you some thoughts in terms of the spiritual ancestry of the Protestant Reformation in England. Soon after 1517, which of course was when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the cathedral church in Edinburgh, uh, Lutheran writings began appearing in England. And a group of people called Lollards, uh, they were basically disciples of John Wycliffe, an earlier translator of the Bible, uh, welcomed these Lutheran writings and many of them wound up paying with their lives for doing so. Uh, the humanists, remember we talked about Renaissance humanism and how it, uh, it said we want to honor the works of men, we want to go back ad fontes, back to the, the source of, of uh, our thinking. Uh, the humanists at Cambridge much appreciated Martin Luther's writings uh, among them were men like Robert Barnes, Thomas Bilney, Thomas Cranmer, John Frith, Hugh Latimer. Uh, and they had a nickname. They, they were nicknamed by others. That usually happens. You don't usually take your own. 
Uh, they were nicknamed Little Germany because they were so uh, devoted to Luther's writings. Um, now, uh, William Tyndale was, as I mentioned, uh, a Bible translator. He was a truly great scholar. He became thoroughly proficient in both Hebrew and Greek. He started off with translating the Greek New Testament, and he did that from the, uh, the Greek text developed by the great humanist uh, Erasmus, Desiderius Erasmus. And parts of that began circulating in England as early as 1525. By the end of 1526, it was complete. It was never printed in England during Wycliffe's, uh, Tyndale's own life uh, because it was, it was illegal. It was banned by the Roman Catholic Church at the time. Uh, but it was printed in Europe, and then copies were smuggled into England. Um, he wrote a number of different important theological works. I'll just mention three this morning. The Parable of the Wicked Mammon was an exposition of his understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Uh, the Obedience of the Christian Man, he wrote in support of royal absolutism, which is very interesting because you're going to see how the political reformation in England tied into this notion of royal absolutism. The king is supreme over everyone in his domain. And then he also wrote a book called The Practice of Prelates, which was a condemnation of the English clergy for moral and spiritual corruption, as well, frankly, also as for ignorance. Um, one scholar objected to William Tyndale's uh, teachings uh, in which he had uh, defended the notion that the king is supreme, right? One scholar objected by saying, we were better without God's law than the Pope's. And this was, the idea was you had to have a, a, a clearly identifiable spokesman for God on earth if anybody was to know for sure what God said. And so this, this uh, Roman Catholic scholar was saying, we were better without God's law than the Pope's. And Tyndale responded, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. That was the passion of William Tyndale. That was the passion of pretty much all the reformers that everyone ought to have access to the scriptures. Everyone ought to study the scriptures for himself and they shouldn't be sort of uh, relegated to a special uh, group of professionals. In May of 1535, an, uh, a Roman Catholic spy in the employ of uh, King Henry VIII betrayed Tyndale in Antwerp in uh, the Netherlands, and he was arrested, and then he was strangled and burnt at the stake near Brussels in October of 1536, and his dying words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Tyndale's New Testament is truly uh, a great uh, achievement in Bible translation, just as Luther's translation into German was. Um, he translated, as I said, from Erasmus's Greek text, but also from the Latin Vulgate and from Luther's German. He consulted those. And it became the basis of almost all New Testaments in English uh, clear into the 20th century. And in fact, over 90% of the authorized version, or what we often call the King James Version of the Bible, is directly William Tyndale's translation. 
Uh, some people have said, you know, Tyndale's translation was, was very awkward English, anything like that. That's ju just simply not true. Tyndale's translation was truly a great linguistic achievement. Uh, it was smuggled into England along with other Protestant books. It was distributed by secret Lollard societies, one of them, the, the main one, calling themselves Christian Brethren, which, by the way, don't confuse with the later Brethren Movement or United Brethren Movement. Uh, but it was smuggled into England, um, and uh, most of the people who were involved in this smuggling were wealthy merchants. Uh, they would purchase uh, especially bales of cloth, from the continent, and those would be shipped over, and hidden inside the bales would be these Bibles and other Protestant book, you know, books. Um, Nick Needham, the author of this uh, part three of his book, 2000, or his, his uh, series, 2000 Years of Christ's Power, part three, Renaissance and Reformation, Needham says, the subsequent flowering of the English language into its full glory, most famously in Shakespeare, in the reign of Elizabeth I, owed much, no much, to the inspiration of Tyndale's New Testament. It would not be going too far to call him the father of modern English. Indeed, a great deal of Shakespeare is drawn right straight out of Tyndale's Old and New Testaments alike. Uh, Tyndale uh, introduced certain uh, particular translations of particular words that he meant to use for the purpose of helping people to recognize that the Bible didn't mean the same things by some terms as the Roman Catholic Church in his day was insisting that it did. Uh, he translated church as congregation. He translated priest as senior or elder because the word priest actually is a, a sort of a linguistic, um, what, elision of the Greek word presbyter presbuteros, old man, literally. Um, and yet the, the church through the centuries had little by little converted or changed the concept of an elder in the New Testament into the concept of a priest. An elder was somebody who, who ruled, who uh, guided the flock, that sort of thing. A priest was somebody who presented sacrifices. And so uh, he said, let's go back to what the word itself meant. Uh, he translated uh, the, the uh, uh, word for repent, metanoia, as, as repent rather than do penance. And do penance was actually a, a mistranslation of that word by Jerome in the Vulgate. And uh, he changed uh, confess, which was associated so strongly with the, the uh, uh, sacrament of confession, into uh, to acknowledge. All of these challenged Roman Catholic doctrine in various ways, though they were perfectly fine translations. They also challenged Roman Catholic ecclesiology and sacramental practice. And that's essentially why the Roman Catholic Church so opposed the distribution of Tyndale's New Testament. It really had nothing to do with uh, an objection to the Bible getting into the common language. There had been common language translations done many, many times before, uh, but this one really created a, a bit of a challenge. The English bishops condemned, seized, and burned these New Testaments as many times as they could get a hold of them. And nonetheless, 
uh, as Needham puts it, the greatest phenomenon of the 1530s and 1540s was, was the huge growth of lay Bible reading. Ordinary people were discussing the Bible in alehouses, uh, which gave me the thought lately, I, I had to start going to pubs or alehouses and just sit at the bar and have a beer and, and strike up conversation with people and say, hey, I want to get your opinion about something. Here's this passage in the Bible. It says such and such. What do you think of that? You know, just draw them out. Uh, yeah, Kevin, I'm sure you will. Al, you want to join us? <laughs> Mickey, I'm sure. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, the illiterate learned to read so that they could study scripture. Women dared to argue with priests about what the Bible taught. So there you have a bit of the, the roots of the spiritual reformation in England. Now we're going to look at the political birth of the English reformation. Uh, and I put it this way, in a spiritual roots political birth, because what actually was sort of the, the crux, the turning point for the English reformation, was definitely a political situation and a political decision. King Henry VIII, and you know, we all know about Henry VIII and all his wives, and you know, he's kind of a legendary figure, right? Well, King Henry VIII had been married to Catherine of Aragon, um, and she was the widow of his brother. And according to, uh, well, let's see, I've forgotten now the specific scripture text, but it's in Leviticus. According to Leviticus, a man was not supposed to have his brother's wife. Well, Catherine gave Henry a female child, but not a male heir. And we're just after the Wars of the Roses, when England had been divided over and over again by conflict uh, between different branches of the royal house, and that had brought significant uh, instability to the whole English nation and to the government there. And Henry was concerned that a female uh, heir to the throne would contribute to the continuation of that instability and could easily lead to a new episode of the Wars of the Roses. And so he really wanted to have a male heir, but she hadn't given him one. So he wanted to divorce her, and he wanted to use this biblical prohibition of a man having his brother's wife as the rationale for it, as the moral justification for it. Now, actually, the text in the scripture uh, seems to refer to a man not having his brother's wife while his brother is still alive. Henry's brother was dead. Uh, but Clement VII, who was pope, was during this time very much under the political dominance of Charles V of France, who was Catherine's nephew. And Charles V didn't want his, his aunt to be disgraced by being divorced from Henry. So he put pressure on Pope Clement VII not to approve Henry's divorce, right? And this led ultimately to a schism, a separation of the English church from the Roman Catholic church. Uh, we could even put it this way, a separation between the English Catholic church and the Roman Catholic church. Except that both of those really are, as I've pointed out before, oxymorons. Catholic means universal, the whole, right? But if it's Roman, is it that? Well, if it's English, is it that, right? 
Well, Henry summoned what became what came to be called the Reformation Parliament in 1532, uh, 1529 rather, pardon me. And over the years, that parliament issued a number of different acts and statutes uh, that were very important to all of this. Uh, it, it took away the church's legislative and financial independence in 1532. Uh, it took away the church's juridical independence in 1533. Under canon law, if you were a member of the clergy or of any of the, the monasteries or convents, and you were accused of a crime, not just an ecclesiastical crime, but even a civil crime, a, a, a political crime, something like that, you couldn't be tried in the civil courts. You could only be tried in the church courts, which gave the members of the clergy pretty much immunity from accountability to the, the legal structure of the society in which they served. Uh, this had contributed partly to the independence of the clergy from political domination, and that's a very good thing, but also it had been abused a lot in contributing to various forms of corruption. It's, it's kind of like you know, ambassadors now who come to the United States, right? They have, uh, they have immunity from any criminal prosecution while they're in the United States. So literally, an ambassador from another country can stand openly on the street and shoot someone to death in murder and he can't be prosecuted here in America because he's got diplomatic immunity. Well, it was sort of like diplomatic immunity for the, for the uh, Roman Catholic clergy uh, in, in England and other countries. But they lost that with the Act of Appeals, which in 1533 forbade appeal to the Pope. Uh, and then in 1534, the Parliament passed the Act of Supremacy, which declared that the monarch, at the time, Henry VIII, right, was the head not only of the civil sphere, but also of the ecclesiastical sphere. Which is very interesting because for the last several hundred years, the popes had been declaring themselves to be head not only of the ecclesiastical sphere, but also of the civil sphere. The pope was, you know, pronounced himself to be the ruler over all rulers on the earth, civil and ecclesiastical. Uh, stretching back at least to Pope Gelasius. Uh, and then in, uh, at, at the time, almost all of the clergy submitted to this act of supremacy, but a few resisted, and among them was Sir Thomas More, who was later canonized by the Roman Catholic Church into St. Thomas More. Uh, he's a, he's a, a great figure and a tragic figure. He was a stern persecutor of Protestants, during, uh, during the time when he was in power, and then he wound up being persecuted and indeed martyred for his continued uh, uh, fidelity to, loyalty to the Pope in Rome after the Act of Supremacy. Now Henry, meanwhile, had previously written a rebuttal or a refutation of Martin Luther. He thought of himself as a theologian, and in fact, he was a pretty bright guy. And because he had written this refutation of Martin Luther, the Pope had actually uh, given him the title Defensor Fidei, the defender of the faith. But when the act of supremacy was passed and Henry signed it and declared himself the head of the church in England, the Pope excommunicated the Defensor Fidei, right? 
Um, <clears throat> what you have to understand, though, is that this political reformation in England achieved essentially zero spiritual reformation. There was no significant change in the theology of the Church of England at this time. It remained essentially Roman Catholic, except now it was no, not Roman anymore. It was now English, and instead of the Pope as head of the church, it had Henry the King as head of the church. Now, during this time, a man named Thomas Cranmer, uh, a, a gentle humanist scholar and cautious thinker who was moving slowly in the direction of Protestantism, as Needham uh, puts it, uh, supported Henry's case for divorce based on, here's the text, Leviticus 20, 21. Uh, he supported Henry's case for this. And he sought European universities' opinions. Now, this was a sort of a, uh, an end run around the popes, and it was an appeal back to a, an earlier concept that we've ta talked about a bit in this course called conciliarism, the notion that the councils were above the popes in authority. And Cranmer wanted the universities of, of England, all of which were Christian, Catholic, you know, spiritual, all of, uh, almost all of the faculty at all of them were priests. Uh, many of them were bishops or archbishops or even cardinals. He wanted the universities to render an opinion on Henry's appeal to Leviticus 2021. 20, um, and the universities gave a very mixed response. It depended basically on where the university was. If the university was in France, it was under the power of Charles V, uh, I'm sorry, Charles V was the emperor, uh, Holy Roman Empire, uh, Francis uh, in France, who, who was defending Catherine in her marriage. And so there, the universities tended to say, no, Henry doesn't have a good case here. The other universities tended to say, yeah, Henry's got a good case here. So that was actually driven a lot by the politics of the time. Um, but this mixed response resulted in Henry's being able to argue even more in England, hey, you know, the church is really not against this. I have the, the support of a lot of theologians on the continent. Um, and Cranmer's doing this won Henry's trust, and Henry made him Archbishop of Canterbury, which was the highest bishopric in the Church of England at the time, still is. Um, Cranmer, as Needham puts it, preached in homely and hard-hitting style. And in fact, he was often called the greatest preacher of the 16th century, of 16th century England, which is saying a lot because there were quite a lot of very fine ones. Now, there were six other evangelical bishops at the time. Remember, evangelical at the time basically denoted those who embraced Martin Luther's understanding, which was embraced by all of the major reformers, that our justification before God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by a combination of grace and merits and faith in Christ plus our, our own works and the works of the church, the sacraments, uh, our doing of penance and anything of that sort, uh, and not only faith in Christ, but also faith in ourselves and the church and, and our works and so on. Uh, so it was uh, the, the, the term evangelical was not the same thing as the term evangelical in America today. Uh, evangelical in America today does embrace that, but it tends to be defined by more things, such as affirmation of the inerrancy of scripture. 
Well, there were six other evangelical bishops at the time, Thomas Goodrich of Ely, John Hilsey of Rochester, Edward Fox of Hereford, Hugh Latimer of Worcester, Nicholas Shaxton of Salisbury, uh, misspelled that one, uh, William Barlow of St. David's. Um, these were all tortured, uh, as was uh, Thomas Cranmer, under Queen Mary, or Bloody Queen Mary, as the Protestants referred to her. Uh, and Cranmer, in particular, recanted his Protestant faith under torture. He signed a document re you know, uh, rejecting the things that he had taught of the Protestant faith. Uh, he was then sentenced to death anyway because of his heresy, and ashamed of his recantation, he revoked that at the time of his execution, and he thrust into the flames first the hand with which he had signed his document of recantation. And he said, by this final act, in, or I'm sorry, Needham said, and we're going to, time, time being merciful to us, I'll, I'll show you exactly what Cranmer said at the time. But Needham says, by this final act in death, Cranmer may have done more to sanctify the Protestant cause in English eyes than anything he had accomplished in his life. Now, a um, couple of the other bishops were Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. Uh, Ridley. Uh, Latimer was among the Little Germany humanists at Cambridge uh, who were meeting together at what was called the White Horse Inn. Some of you might be familiar with White Horse Inn associated with some folks out at Westminster Theological Seminary in Escondido, California. That's where they got the name for this. Um, and they were discussing Luther's ideas. Well, Latimer became Bishop of Worcester in 1535 through 39 under Henry VIII. And under Bloody Mary, some 300 Protestants were burnt. Over 100 died in prison, mostly obscure men and women, but also leaders, among whom were Ridley and Latimer. Uh, now, who was this Mary, by the way? Well, she was the first daughter of Henry VIII, uh, who could succeed to the throne when he had died, and then very shortly after he had assumed the throne, his son Edward VI, by one of his other wives, I've forgotten now which one, which uh, it was, but Edward VI, uh, assumed the throne when he was, I think, nine years old. And so others uh, ruled as regents in his place. He was a very passionate Protestant, even at that early age, though. And others called him the, uh, the modern Josiah, after the, the King Josiah in the Old Testament. Now, Ridley was Bishop of Rochester and then of London, and Needham describes him as a man of steel who flinched at nothing to promote the Protestant cause. Uh, he was converted when he studied a 9th century treatise on the Lord's Supper by a man named Ratramnus, a theologian priest, Ratramnus, in which Ratramnus had argued against transubstantiation and the Mass, uh, or the idea of transubstantiation, because actually the term itself hadn't yet been coined. But the notion that the, the bread and the wine actually literally turned into the body and the blood of Christ Retromnus had argued against, and Ridley read that. Uh, Ridley was perhaps the greatest professional theologian among the English reformers, says Needham, and uh, Ridley and Latimer were uh, ultimately burned at the stake together on October, I believe it was October 16 of 1555. Um, and there, Latimer 
uttered what is called uh, by Needham the, the uh, most quoted remark of the English Reformation, that is most, most commonly cited by historians. Latimer, on his way to being burnt at the stake, said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man, for we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. The courage of these men was really quite something. Well, in 1558, Mary died, and Elizabeth, a Protestant, assumed the throne. Exiles who had fled England under Mary's reign returned from all over Europe. Uh, The Anglican Church's ties with Rome were now broken, and I put in there permanently because, of course, we don't know about the future. Who knows? There could always be a reunion. Um, And uh, this brought about what is typically referred to as the Elizabethan settlement. And characteristic of that settlement were these four major points, that it was parliamentary, that it was royal, that it was uh, compromise, and that at first it was very tenuous. First of all, it was, impi- it was parliamentary. It, it was embodied in legal acts and statutes. It wasn't just a sort of a popular movement. Uh, There was the act of supremacy, acknowledging the monarch's sovereignty in both civil and ecclesiastical affairs. There was the act of uniformity, uh, introducing Cranmer's uh, uh, 1552 Book of Common Prayer for the liturgy. There are all sorts of ironies in church history. The act of supremacy that freed England from domination by the Pope, of course, put it under the domination of the king, or in this case, the queen, for this particular period, right? That same act is what the Scottish Presbyterians in the 17th century would die for opposing. And I, I may tell you this story next week. Maybe, maybe I won't get around to it, so I will, I will now. The story of the two Margarets of Wigton, uh, an elderly woman and a young girl who were arrested because they refused to take the act of supremacy and they were taken to the, uh, uh, to the seashore at a place in, in Solway uh, where the tide moves an immense distance. It goes almost a mile and a half between low tide and high tide. And the, the elderly uh, Margaret was put on a stake way out at the very lowest part of the tide. And the young Margaret was tied to a stake close where only the highest tide would reach and the young Margaret was told all you have to do to save the old Margaret out there is to acknowledge the act of supremacy and as the waters rose little by little over hours young Margaret watched older Margaret die and she refused to recant her opposition to the act of supremacy and the older Margaret of course approved they both stayed true to their faith. Well, the irony is the act of supremacy freed the English church and it enslaved the Scottish church. And similarly, the act of uniformity, introducing Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer, brought peace to the Church of England, but when in the next century, uh, um, Charles I would try to impose the Book of Common Prayer on the Church of Scotland, the Scots resisted that and it brought disunity there brought conflict. Um, So the Elizabethan settlement is parliamentary. It's also royal. That is, Elizabeth's support for this was absolutely indispensable. Couldn't have gone on, couldn't have endured without that. 
Uh, Richard Hooker, who was an Anglican uh, apologist, uh, wrote a marvelous uh, set called Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity, uh, wrote, by the goodness of Almighty God and his servant Elizabeth, we are. In other words, we owe our very existence as the Church of England to not only God, but also Elizabeth. It was also a compromise. Uh, as I said, Elizabeth was Protestant, but not really strongly so. And she wanted to be as inclusive as possible. So she wanted to include Roman Catholics, Henrichians, that is Catholics without the Pope, and conservative Protestants, those who follow the teachings of Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and, and actually Knox for a while was a pastor in England before going to Scotland uh, or between times in Scotland. She wanted to include all of these different people as much as possible and also the people who became known, known later on as the Puritans. Uh, we can refer them to them as the Proto-Puritans. They wanted to strip the Church of England of all of the traditional liturgy that it had inherited from the Roman Catholic Church. Elizabeth wanted to include all of these people in her church. And for a long while, that really did result in significant peace in the Church of England. And I think it allowed the Church of England to gain great strength and health in ways that were, that were a bit distinct from some of the churches on the continent where they were constantly in conflict uh, especially with the political rulers over them. And at first, this uh, Elizabethan uh, settlement was tenuous. The Protestants were divided, uh, some of them accepting, and others, the Puritans and Presbyterians, wanting further reform. And we'll uh, actually not get into much of that uh, in the remaining weeks because we're only looking at the Reformation, not at the post-Reformation. Oh, uh, well, I wish. Now, here are a few, a few aspects of the Church of England. Uh, under Edward, Edward VI, who was raised by the Protestant tutors, Duke of Somerset and Duke of Nor Northumberland, the young Josiah, uh, the, the Church of England uh, really sort of got its start there after Henry's death. And then, of course, it was interrupted by the reign of Queen Mary. But then later, also under Elizabeth, we see these characteristics. First of all, there was a Lutheran attitude toward church government. Remember, we talked about how uh, for Luther, he appealed to the princes for protection of the Protestant Reformation and of the church, and he was willing to embrace the idea, cuius regio, eius uh, religio. Whose is the prince? His is the religion. Or who is the prince? His is the religion. Find out who is the ruling prince in a given area, that should be the religion of that area, right? Well, that was Luther's idea, and it brought about state control of many churches. Um, and so the Church of England basically accepted that instead of the reformed understanding that the church should be completely independent of civil or, or state control. Um, and so it, the, the Church of England embraced that, and uh, that led to state control through the king or queen, through the parliament, and through royally appointed bishops. Later, uh, King James I of England, who was the sixth of Scotland, uh, not too long after he assumed the throne in 1603 as heir to Elizabeth, uh, became famous for the statement, no bishop, no king. 
because he understood that royal authority to appoint the bishops meant royal ability to control the church, to control the message that the churchgoers got. And remember, in those days, there's no radio, there's no television, there are no newspapers, and practically all information got communicated through the church. So if you want to control the people, you have to control the church. And if you're going to control the church, you have to control her highest ranking authorities. So the, the, the king insisted on the authority to appoint bishops. Elizabeth had done that, and she urged James to continue doing that, which he did. James was uh, uh, more, more uh, moderate and prudent in how he did it than was his son Charles I, which is why James didn't provoke a, a revolution, and Charles I did. Um, it was fairly reformed, though, in its doctrines, particularly on the Lord's Supper. Uh, first, the 42 articles, later whittled down to 39 articles of the Anglican Church, were basically Calvinistic in their soteriology in terms of embracing total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Uh, predestination, um, grace alone, and uh, faith alone, and so on. All of these are part of the articles of the Anglican Church. Uh, but particularly on the Lord's Supper, though the Anglican Church res uh, what, uh, continued most of Roman Catholic, Catholic liturgy, when it came to the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, it embraced the, the, ref the Reformed view that in participating in the Lord's Supper, you fed indeed spiritually on the body and blood of Christ, but not because they were locally present by the transformation of the bread and wine into the body and blood or by the consubstantiation the, the body and blood being with, in with and under the bread and wine, as Luther had taught, but rather you fed on the body and blood of Christ by faith, the Holy Spirit, as Calvin put it, actually lifting you, your spirit, into heaven, where right there you were with Christ in body, all right, in spirit. Um, in public worship, um, there was a period of iconoclasm, that is the destruction of icons and, and uh, images in the churches early on in the English Reformation, but that didn't endure for very long. But you did have the adoption of the Book of Common Prayer, the first edition in 1549, which was very cautious, made very few changes from Roman Catholic liturgy. Uh, and then in 1552, uh, an edition that was more thoroughly Protestant. No liturgy from the Reformation era has more spoken responses by the congregation, points, points out Needham. The, the point of that is to say, look, for Roman Catholic, Catholic liturgy prior to the Reformation, the vast majority of what went on was done just by the priests and often with their backs turned to the congregation because what they were doing was they were offering Christ as a sacrifice and the congregation was, was watching, right? For the reformers, the congregation should participate, and in the Anglican church, there was tremendous participation by the laity as they recited creeds, as they recited confessions of faith, as they recited prayers, and all of these different things, they participated right along with the clergy. Uh, and then another aspect of the uh, Church of England was that now, instead of having literally hundreds of monasteries and chantry chapels, places where the, uh, where the, uh, uh, the liturgy would be translated, the mass would be, not translated, the mass would be chanted 
by priests, basically in little private services. All of those things were essentially nationalized. Uh, all of those locations, all of the monasteries and everything else were nationalized. Their property was seized, and they were then sold off to enrich the monarchy. Huh. Now we come to William Tyndale uh, and one of his statements. Um, I just want to give you this as a beautiful example of how Tyndale's uh, teaching communicated the glory and the beauty of the gospel itself to the English people at the time. Uh, and so this, this is just an extended quote from him. Evangelion, that we call the gospel, is a Greek word and signifieth good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings that make a man's heart glad and maketh him sing, dance, and leap for joy. Hey, you know, uh, sovereign grace folks, sing, dance, and leap for joy, right? Uh, as when David had killed Goliath. In like manner is the Evangelion of God, joyful tidings, and uh, as some say, a good hearing published by the apostles throughout all the world of Christ, the right David, how that he hath fought with sin, with death and the devil, and overcome them, whereby all men that were in bondage to sin, wounded with death, overcome of the devil, are, without their own merits or deservings, loosed, justified, restored to life, and saved, brought to liberty and reconciled into the favor of God and set at one with him again. Which tidings, as many as believe, laud, praise, and thank God, are glad, sing and dance for joy. This evangelion, or gospel, is called the New Testament because that, as a man, when he shall die, uh, because that as a man, when he shall die, appointeth his goods to be dealt and distributed after his death among them, which he nameth to be his heirs, even so Christ, before his death, commanded and appointed that such evangelion, gospel, or tidings, should be declared throughout all the world, and therewith to give unto all that repent and believe all his goods. What are those goods? That is to say, his life, wherewith he swallowed and devoured up death, his righteousness, wherewith he banished sin, his salvation, wherewith he overcame eternal damnation. Now, <clears throat> now can the wretched man that knoweth himself to be wrapped in sin and in danger to death and hell hear no more joyous a thing than such glad and comfortable tidings of Christ, so that he cannot but be glad and laugh from the low bottom of his heart if he believe that the tidings are true. Therefore is the gospel the ministration of life. And I won't finish the rest of the quote because we are just essentially out of time. Um, but I do want to give you just a piece of Thomas Cranmer's speech uh, prior to his execution. Um, now, he says, I come to the great thing which so much troubleth my conscience, more than anything that ever, ever I did or said in my whole life, and that is the setting abroad of a writing contrary to the truth, which now I here renounce and refuse. That writing contrary to the truth was his recantation of his Protestant uh, beliefs. I now renounce and refuse as things written with my hand contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart, and written for fear of death, and to save my life if it might be. And that is, all such bills and papers which I have signed, written, or signed with my hand since my degradation from office, wherein I have written many things untrue. And forasmuch as my hand hath offended, writing contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall first be punished. For when I come to the fire, 
it shall first be burned. And then uh, John Fox uh, says, um, let's see, that when he came to the place where the holy bishops and martyrs of God, Latimer and Ridley, were burnt before him for a confession of truth, kneeling down, he prayed to God, and not long tarrying in his prayers, putting off his garments to his shirt, he prepared himself to death. Then was an iron chain tied about Cranmer, whom, when they perceived to be more steadfast than that he could be moved from his sentence, they commanded the fire to be set unto him, i.e., they chained him, but he showed no desire to you know, get himself off the stake and away from the flames, right? And when the wood was kindled and the fire began to burn near him, stretching out his arm, he put his right hand into the flame, which he held so steadfast and unmovable, saving that once with the same hand he wiped his face, that all men might see his hand burned before his body was touched. His body did so abide the burning of the flame with, which, with such constancy, constancy and steadfastness that standing always in one place without moving his body, he seemed to move no more than the stake to which he was bound. His eyes were lifted up into heaven, and oftentimes he repeated his unworthy right hand, so long as his voice would suffer him. And using often the words of Stephen, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In the greatness of the flames, he gave up the ghost in the 67th year of his age. So there's a, a little quick picture of some of, the, some of the leaders of the English Reformations, and I hope that it will inspire us to be courageous for our faith and to follow after the scriptures no matter what. So thanks for coming this morning, and uh, enjoy the worship service that comes next. <laughs>